Hey, welcome back to the Ascent Church Podcast. We have a great episode for you. So let's get to it. Junior, appreciate that. Well, that was really weak, but that's okay. Uh, we'll, we'll go for it from there. Uh, if you are, uh, if you've been here the last couple weeks, you know that we're in this series on Ezra. And uh, so if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there, Ezra chapter 2. Uh, and then hopefully we'll get to 3, but I'm not sold that we're going to get there because we're talking about a big topic, so I've got to kind of introduce it for us today. Uh, and then hopefully over the next couple weeks we can play it out. And that topic is the topic of worship. Uh, one of the most important things that we are to do is to worship God. And in fact, that's what a Christian is. Jesus says when He comes, the people will worship Him in spirit and truth. So if we're not a worshiper of Jesus, then we're not a follower of Jesus. It's a really important thing, and for a lot of us, there's a lot of confusion about what it actually means. And we actually get to see what worship is like in this text. Uh, Ezra is written about 500 years before Jesus comes on the scene, about 500 B.C., and the context of it is that the Israelites were in slavery in Babylon because of their own rebellion against God. God raises up Cyrus the king, and he raises up some of the Jewish leaders to send them back home. So they make a 500-mile journey back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city. This was important in its time because the Messiah was supposed to come from Jerusalem. The Messiah was supposed to come from this place. And so they had to restore right worship in the right city. But what we find out is is that it's actually just kind of a shadow for what is to come. Jesus is coming to completely and totally fulfill what the Israelites are doing right now. So as the church, we are also about the business of rebuilding the city and building the temple. But Jesus says it's a different temple and it's a different city. The different temple is no longer a physical place where people come to meet with God. The temple is now the people of God. Jesus is the foundation, and we are the living stones in which we are building up as the church. And Jesus says, I'm with you. I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That doesn't mean ascent will never cease to exist. One day ascent will cease to exist because that's the way everything goes in this world. One day the United States of America will cease to exist. That's just the way things work in the world. But Jesus says in the midst of all of that, the one thing that will stay and be steady is the church. And boy, Jesus has been right if you look back over the past 2,000 years. The Roman Empire was so big and powerful that we can't even comprehend it. Uh, the Roman Empire makes America look like it's in diapers. I mean, it just it completely would destroy America in size. And yet, guess what happened? The Roman Empire, who tried to destroy Christianity, is now a bunch of ruins that you can walk through for about 10 bucks. And yet the church of Jesus is still the greatest kingdom in the entire world. One day, it's very likely that people will walk through the ruins of America or the ruins of China. And guess what? will still be sustained in that time. The kingdom of Jesus Christ. I will build my church. I will build it. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so how do we build the church? Well, we build the church the same way that Ezra and these Israelites built the city and built the temple when they came back. And the first thing they did was to worship God. Now, we also build the city. So uh, they thought that the whole goal was to come and rebuild Jerusalem. When Jesus comes after his resurrection, he says the mission isn't Jerusalem. The mission starts in Jerusalem. From Jerusalem, it is to spread across the entire world. See, uh, the Israelites for so long thought God had given them a land. And he did. He gave them the land. But God also gave them the world. Everything in this world is ours. We own it if we're Christians. We are co-heirs with Christ in the whole world. The problem is is most of the world doesn't know that it's ours. 
So we, we, have to, we have to spread the message of Jesus Christ and see God's kingdom come to bear. And as God's kingdom grows, as his church grows, what should be happening is everywhere we go, as restored people in Jesus Christ, we're restoring the world around us. They're rebuilding Jerusalem. We're rebuilding the world for the sake of Jesus Christ. And how do we do it? Well, the same way that they do it, the first thing they do when they get back is they worship God. We are worshipers of God at our core. It's what it means to be Christian. And it's honestly how we fulfill our mission. And if you don't have a good idea of what worship is, then what I'm saying doesn't make sense. Because for a lot of us, what worship is, is like the 15-minute thing that you do before I preach, and then maybe the one song after. It's the thing that women do. They sing, and the men stand there with their hands in their pocket, uh, showing no emotion because they're afraid people will hear their voice. That's what we think of when we think of worship. I'm just I'm going to be honest with you guys. Uh, and... The reality is, is that if that's your idea of worship, that's a very weak idea of what worship is. Now, to be sure, our singing should be worship, but our singing is not worship. Worship is everything. It's this huge, massive thing that should encompass the life of Christians. And so what I want to do as we begin, I'm going to pray for us in a minute, but as we begin, I want to tell you what worship is. I want to try to define it for you. And then I think we'll look at Romans 12, 1 and 2, and, and let Paul kind of define what worship is for the Christian. And then we'll jump into the text and we'll get as far as we can. Uh, because each week we just pick up where we left off. We believe that the power of God is not in my words, it's in God's words. And so I want to try to give you those words. Let me pray for us. Father, we need you desperately. God, we, uh, we pray that you would show up, that we would be aware of your presence in this place. Lord, as I preach your word, I pray that you would help me preach clearly. And God, I pray that you would raise up a heart of worshipers in this place. Lord, I pray that maybe for the first time somebody would say, you know, if worship is the point of it all, I haven't really been worshiping God. I've used God to get what I actually worship, but I haven't actually been worshiping God. Lord, I pray that you would show us those areas where those of us who are Christians who have been following you would see maybe there's something more valuable in our life or there's something we're serving and that we would repent humbly of that. Jesus, I love you and I praise you. Amen. Uh, whenever Jesus talks about worship, that's usually when the crowd gets divided. Uh, because when we're talking about worship, we're talking about the thing that you value the most. And so when I start messing with the things that you guys value the most... What tends to happen is one of two responses. There's humility and repentance, or there's hostility and rebellion. That's really the only two results. Uh, Jesus comes, and some people are, are talking to him about the divisions that he's causing. And Jesus says, you think I came to bring peace? I have not. I have come to divide brother from brother, sister from sister, mother from daughter, father from son. That Jesus splits households right down the middle because you cannot be a halfway Jesus follower. You cannot be a lukewarm worshiper of God. You're either all in or you're not in at all. He's Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. And yet in a culture in the American church where for a very long time Christianity has been accepted. It's been a positive thing to be a Christian for a very long time. What can happen in a culture like that is you're a lukewarm Christian honoring Jesus with your lips because it's convenient to you, but not really honoring him with it, your heart. Well, that season of positive Christianity is certainly coming to an end. Now, therefore, a while it was neutral. You know, you could be a Christian as long as you didn't bother us. And, and now as the world continues to, to move, and this is not necessarily a bad thing, not, not the world. Let me say it this way. Our country, in our context, as it continues to move, Christianity is becoming something that is negative. That if you're going to be a Christian, you're going to have to be willing to sacrifice. You're going to have to be willing to be misunderstood and called a bigot because people don't take the time to understand what Christianity is about. And here's what it'll do. It'll divide the true worshipers from the false worshipers. 
Those who really worship Jesus and those who were just kind of there because it was the cool thing to do or because that's what your family did and your grandparents did and so this is what you did. That will go away really quickly. And if we're going to be a church that blesses Northwest Oklahoma, if we're going to be a church family that grows and builds our faith, we're going to have to be full of true worshipers of Jesus Christ. And if you're not a true worshiper, that's fine. You're more than welcome to visit as long as you want. But if you ever start thinking, Man, is he trying to convert me to like a, a more serious Christianity? The answer is yes. I'm absolutely trying to convert you each week with every breath that I have. I'm preaching Jesus magnified so that hopefully it will radically transform your life. I don't want you just to read your Bible for 15 minutes a day and give some money to the church. I want your whole life to be centered around Jesus Christ. See the difference in those two things? I'm a little fired up this morning. I know you guys aren't, but I got enough energy for both of us. (laughs) Miss Donna this week made me banana nut bread, and it just did something to my soul. (laughs) Let me give you a couple things that uh, worship is. Uh, we'll start with this. Worship is a response to what you have seen. Look at Romans 12, 1, if you have it. And I didn't tell them back there, so we'll see if they can get it up there. Uh, Romans 12, 1, Paul says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. So the first thing that we notice is that it's in view of the mercies of God. This is why it is only those who are truly Christians that can worship. Worship is not something you muster up inside of yourself. It's something that comes out of you naturally as you see what God has done for you. It's like watching a lot of you guys who watch your favorite football team. You know, nobody has to tell me to scream at Mike Gundy as if he can hear me. That just naturally comes out of me as I watch Oklahoma State make another bad decision. And in the same way, some of you who have you know, better NFL teams that are still playing in the playoffs... Uh, because I like to cheer for losers, evidently. (laughs) When they win, you scream for joy. You know, I see grown men who say, I don't really worship because I'm not a very interactive guy. And they stand here at church like this when we're singing. But let me tell you something. They are worshiping when their favorite team wins. They turn into like five-year-olds screaming and shouting and yelling. Why? Because they're celebrating what they've seen. It's something that is in front of them. You know, for me, the, the, one of the greatest moments of my life, besides marrying Taylor, is close, though, is Dell Jr. winning the 2004 Daytona 500. Now, that might not be a big deal to you guys, but in my household, the Daytona 500 is above Christmas as far as what we celebrate. And when Dell Jr. won the Daytona 500, I ran to the living room screaming, and I jumped in my dad's arms, and we acted as if like we had won a million dollars. You know what? Nobody had to say, Blake, what I want you to do is scream and yell and be excited. No, it was a response to what I had seen. And in the same way, when we worship Jesus, it's a response to what we know. If you don't see yourself as and understand the fact that you are an enemy of God by nature, and yet because of what God did, nothing that you did, but that Jesus came to make you not only just like a servant of God, but a son or a daughter of God. The more you realize that, the more your only response is to give him everything. When you realize that you were a slave to the passions of your flesh, you could not defeat them. You would not defeat them because you were dead. And Jesus came to make you alive so that you could be a servant in the kingdom of God. You can't help but worship. When you begin to realize that your life was meaningless and it was for meaningless endeavors... 
And yet Jesus saved you to a new purpose and a new family and a new mission. And that you can join with the Apostle Paul in saying, you know what, I have purpose now and I have hope later. Which is why Paul says, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You can't help but to worship. You know, Paul was a really cool guy. He, he got so um, infatuated with Jesus in view of the mercies. He understood it so well that you couldn't do anything to him. Like, you really couldn't. So they, they wanted to kill him uh, for preaching the gospel. Well, at first what they wanted to do was they said, God, Paul, quit preaching the gospel. And he says, I can't. It's, it's all I can do. To live is Christ. My whole life is centered around this. And they said, okay, Paul, we're going to put you in prison. And Paul says, all right, awesome. Lock me to a jailer so I can preach the gospel to him day and night. And they're like, okay, well, that's a bad idea. Paul, we're going to kill you. Paul says, okay, cut my head off because to die is gain. What can you do to a guy like that? Nothing. You live without fear. You live with total purpose. This is purpose. And this is what worship looks like. So it's it's a response. And then I like what Paul also says. He says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. Worship is about living, not about dying. So I, I, you know, this is kind of a question that's been posed to me and a question that I've heard other Christians ask and they talk about. And that is, you know, would you would you die for the name of Christ? Like if somebody said, you know, uh, if you say you're a Christian, I'm going to shoot you. Would you say, yes, uh, I'm a Christian and shoot me anyways. And the truth is, is that we don't actually know what we would do. We, we just don't. You might think I know what I would do. Well, that's what Peter said in the Gospels. He said, I will never deny you. And then while Jesus is about to go to the cross, a 14-year-old girl gets Peter to say a cuss word, saying, I don't know him at all. You don't know what you would do. But what you can plan for is if you will live for him. You know, there's a lot of people who say, I will die for my kids. A lot of dads say, I will die for my kids. Let me tell you what we need. We don't need more dads who will die for their kids. We need more dads who will live for their kids. Like you might be willing to die for your kids, but will you show up to their games? Will you be present in their life? Will you teach them the ways of Jesus? Will you be a present figure in their life? Yeah, yeah you might be able to die. Dying in many ways is a lot easier. I can put my body in front of a bullet and it's over. But day in and day out, living for something, living for someone, well, that's the challenge. That's where it comes into play. And this is what worship is about. It's about living for Jesus. And let me just say this. You have no reason to believe that you would die for Jesus if you're not already living for him. He's not even Lord over your wallet. And you think you'll take a bullet? Come on. We've got to be first people who live for Jesus because of the way we worship him. So let me give you two uh, definitions of what worship is. Uh, I believe worship is serving God with a smile and it's valuing God above all else. That's what we see. So anywhere in the Bible where you see the word worship, you can almost always also translate that word service. To say that I'm worshiping God is to say that I'm serving God. So a true worshiper is somebody who serves God and they value God above all else. He's the most valuable thing in my life. And here's something that is really interesting. A lot of people think worship is just for Christians or worship is just for religious people. It's not. We all worship. Every single person in this world is a worshiper. Every single person is serving something and they're valuing something above all else. You can be an atheist and that's okay. But let me tell you something. You were made to worship and you will worship. You will serve something and you will value something above all else. And for the Christian, what we say is the thing that we choose to worship is Jesus. Valuing him above all else and serving him above all else. And this is kind of the point where you're like, well... 
Isn't that kind of egotistical for God to want us to worship Him, to value Him above all else, and to serve Him above all else? I mean, it would be really egotistical for me to say that. Like if I got up here and I said, what I want you guys to do is serve me before you serve anybody else. And please value Blake and Blake's opinion over all things. You guys say, no, we're out of here. By the way, you should. If I ever get to that point, you should just walk out the door. This is not about me. So why does God want us to worship him? Is it because he's like, oh, I really need people to serve me? Oh, I just, I really, I, you know, like some of you on, on Instagram or Facebook, you put something up there, see how many likes you get so you feel appreciated and loved. Is that what God's doing? I just want to see how many people will love me. No. God is perfectly satisfied in himself. God is three beings in one. The Father, the Son, the Trinity. For eternity past, you go back a trillion years, you know what you'll find? You'll find the Trinity in perfect relationship with one another. Perfect happiness, perfect joy. It was an overflow of their love that they invited us into that relationship. He didn't need us to value him. And he also didn't need us to serve him. Acts 17 says, what can men provide me? With the kind of the, the thought of nothing. <laughs> you know, like I can't give God any. God's not waiting on Blake Farley to do something to make things happen. You know, oh, shucks. I really would have, you know, helped Woodward out if Blake would have worked a little bit harder. No. He's the ruler of the universe. He doesn't need me to serve him. So why does he want me to serve him? Why does he want me to value him? For my sake. God wants me to value him and serve him because by me serving him, he's serving me. You see, if you worship something, and you will, the thing that you worship will become the master of your life. You will become a slave to something. Nobody is truly free. And in our kind of modern world, we like to think of autonomy and I'm my own person. You're not your own person. You worship something and that thing that you worship, that thing you value the most, that thing you serve will control your life. And not all masters are equal. Just ask somebody who has a problem with addiction if all masters are equal. Because that's ultimately worship going, gone very wrong. See, they thought they were free and they were serving the bottle or they were serving the pills or they were serving the sex. And before they knew it, all of a sudden, they weren't in control. The thing was in control of them. And it wasn't that they could just stop. You know, For us on the outside, when we see people like that, we're like, just quit. But if you ask somebody who struggles with addiction, they know that that's not how it works. They're no longer in the driver's seat. I almost think that that's better for them than the way most of us live because you actually get to see the destruction of what you worship when it's something like that. And those people actually learn what it looks like to give control over to God. The more insidious is the subtle things we have. We worship our job and the world says that's okay, so we don't even think about our job controlling us. Or we worship our stuff and we don't even realize we're worshiping our stuff. And people say, I don't worship money. Let me give you a hypothetical. You, uh, you're doing a job here and you get offered a job in Oregon. Uh, I don't know why I said Oregon. It's a long ways away. Uh, you get offered a job in Oregon and it's the same job you're doing, less hours, and you get paid double the money. Would you sign up and go right now without any other questions? Now, I'm setting you up so you're like, he's going to trick me. I'm not going to say yes. So I'm not going to make you raise your hand. But... The fact is, and you know this in your own heart, a lot of us would say, yeah, I'm gone. <clears throat> well, what is running your life? What is controlling your life? What is telling you where to go and how you'll go? It's the money. If that's the only question you ask, if that's the main question you ask, if it's not about, you know, where's, how's my family growing or am I part of my church or am I part of what God's doing here? Can I be a part of what God's doing there? None of those things factor in and, and not just factor in, but are the most valuable things. Then you're worshiping your stuff over your God. 
And we see in Ezra, as we go back to Ezra chapter 2, that these people who have been in slavery for a long time are not about to go back to that kind of life. In verse 62, which is where we left off last week, uh, before this, we see people who didn't have the proper identification. Last week, if you were here, I preached the Hebrew phone book. Some of you guys saw me uh, get a jewel in my crown for preaching through that text. Uh, this week is a lot more exciting than that. That felt like I was preaching from a mattress tag. Verse 62, though, picks up kind of where that left off. There was these people who had, didn't have the proper identification. And so the people were like, well, what do we do with these people? Because for the Jewish people, it was really important that they had a very pure line. It had to be real Jewish people going and rebuilding Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple because the Messiah was going to come from the Jewish people. So what do we do? If you want to learn more about that, you can listen to last week's sermon. I want to focus on what they actually do. Verse 62. These searched for their entries in the genealogical records, but they could not be found. So they were disqualified from the priesthood. Verse 63. The governor ordered them not to eat the most holy things until there was a priest who could consult the Urim and the Thummim. The Urim and the Thummim was this really cool kind of Old Testament uh, thing that they used. Almost like you could think of it as like a magic eight ball. Uh, so the priest, they would go to the priest, they would go with their question with the priest, and the priest would look at this thing and it would tell them God's answer. It was either yes, no, or no answer. And uh, the people of God, what I love here is they're not about to make the same mistakes they made before slavery. Before slavery, they didn't care what God wanted. God sent prophet after prophet to try to tell them what to do. And the people said, now we're going to do what we want to do. They loved what they wanted. They worshiped other things other than God. Well, now here are these people coming back and they're like, here's this decision to make. What are we going to do? We're not doing anything. We're going to go to God. We're going to see what God wants for us first. And I wonder how many of us in our lives do the same thing. Or do we kind of just make decisions and go and then hope that God will bless what we've already decided to do? Because Blake Farley, you know, it's easy for me to preach this up here with a microphone on my, on my face. It's really hard for me to step off the stage and actually live this. And here's what normally happens for me. I make a decision and then I ask God why it's not working. <laughs> I decide to buy something and then I wonder why that thing isn't working the way I want it to. <laughs> God's, here's my plans. Here's what Taylor and I are doing. Now I need you to give power to it. I want you to do what you're supposed to do to make my life go well. And if it doesn't go well, then I'm going to curse the sky for you not helping my plans the way that you ought to help my plans. In that scenario, who is worshiping who? See, I don't really want to worship God. I want God to worship me. I'm not serving God with a smile. I hope that he serves me with a smile. And really what I'm doing is I'm using God to get what I really value the most. You know, I say I value God, but what I'm really valuing is the thing that I want to happen. The thing that I hope happens. And so God, be a good little God and help me get what I want. In reality, what we really want is a genie. Or some of you would like us to actually have the magic eight ball back. You know, Jesus says we have something far better. We don't have to go to a priest anymore. Uh, my connection to God isn't any better than yours. You know, my, my prayers hit the ceiling the same way yours do. If I talk to God, it's me talking to God as a child of God, just the way you do. Because Jesus is our priest. In Hebrews 10, it tells us this. Jesus is the priest. The priest uh, served the role of being the intermediator between man and God. Sinful man needed a way to get to holy God. Jesus comes as the great high priest. And he doesn't make sacrifices of lambs and sheep and goats as they did in the Old Testament because he is the innocent lamb. He is the sacrifice. And he makes a way for us to have the same status as him before God, which should blow our minds. I don't, I don't know how to even communicate that well. 
But to understand that you are a son or daughter of God, like full stop, adopted into the family of God, co-heir with Jesus Christ. That's amazing. And we can go to God and we can talk directly to him. But I think some of us would rather just have God tell us yes or no. You know, I think some of you would be like, yeah, I think it'd be awesome. Forget God. If I just had a magic eight ball that would tell me the truth. You know, should I take this job? Yes. Should I marry this person? No answer. That's kind of what I thought too. You know, <laughs> we, we, would, we would like something like that. And the reality is, is if that's us, and that's a little bit is in my heart as well. What I'm really wanting is not a relationship with God, but I'm wanting a genie to tell me what to do and to bless what I do. See, the reason why God doesn't give us clear answers is because he's your father. He's trying to grow you up. Just like any good dad, you don't give all the answers to your kids. You let them learn how to do things. You know, you let them struggle. Why? Because through struggling, we grow. I don't know if you've ever seen a kid who is completely coddled. What happens is, is you better be ready to coddle that kid when they're 47 years old. Because they never learned how to be an adult. They never learned how to grow up. Well, God wants us to grow up. So as a father, he says, I'll be with you. But sometimes you got to make decisions. Sometimes it's not always all that clear. And we've got to be honest in our own hearts. Do we value that relationship or do we just want somebody to tell us what to do and to make our plan come true? Because the answer to that will tell you what you actually worship. There's two ways to know what somebody worships. And we, we, we really need to be honest with ourselves because in Matthew 15, 8, Jesus says this people, it's one of the most terrifying things. He's quoting from Isaiah. And he says, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. So it's possible for us to be people who say we worship God and to come to services like this consistently, but our hearts be far from God. So how do we know what we actually worship? How do we know what we value the most and what we are actually serving? Well, if you were an investigator and you want to know what somebody was worshiping, you would just need to look at two things. You say, show me your bank account and show me your calendar. If you show me your bank account, I'll know what you value. Show me your calendar, I'll know what you actually serve. It's really easy to say I'm a worshiper of God, but what do you really value? What do you spend money on? And let me look at your calendar. What, what, what do you serve? See, this is true in every area of life. If you're a parent and you tell me you love your kid, but you make sure you eat before they eat, I'm going to begin to think that you value yourself more than you value your, your kid. If, if you show me your calendar and you haven't seen your kid in three years because you're off doing what you want to do, then I'm going to start to believe that you maybe say you love your kid, but you don't actually love your kid. Because your bank account and your calendar will show me what you actually believe is worthy of worship, what you actually value and what you actually serve. This is kind of the point where everybody tenses up. And why do you tense up? Because I'm about to mess with some of your gods. This is exactly what happens to Jesus. They loved Jesus when he was healing people, when he's doing the grace thing. Like, I love it when it's one of those sermons where I leave here feeling really good. But when Jesus said... You have to worship me and me alone. I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. Everybody leaves. Why? Because we don't value God. We want God to help us get what we actually value. So there's two ways, especially in our context and our culture, two things we worship uh, with our, the first thing is our stuff. The, the truth is you will either worship God with your stuff or you will worship your stuff. And the other thing is our jobs. That's just true for Americans. We either worship our job or we worship our stuff. I'm going to read verses 64 through 70. We see the people who are returning here. The first thing that they do when they get back is they make an offering. Verse 64. 
The whole combined assembly numbered 42,360, not including their 7,337 male and female servants and their 200 male and fe- male and female singers, which I could preach a whole sermon on verse 65 about how ironic it is that God's freed people have slaves coming with them. This is just another sign that this isn't going to work, that we need a savior to come from the outside to change our hearts. Verse 66, they had 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. That's a lot of donkeys. Every time I I see donkey in the Bible, I think of Shrek. I, I don't know why. Verse 68, after they arrived at the Lord's house in Jerusalem, some of the family heads gave free will offerings for the house of God in order to have it rebuilt on its original site. Based on what they could give, they gave 61,000 gold coins, 6,250 pounds of silver, and 100 priestly garments to the treasury for the project. The priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants, and some of the people settled in their towns, and the rest of Israel settled in their towns. The big idea of this section is you'll either worship your stuff or you'll worship God with your stuff. There's really not any in-between. Uh, What we see here is actually really interesting. Some of the commentaries, I don't know how they figured this stuff out, but they say that this offering in our today's money would be worth about 15 to 18 million dollars. These are actually really wealthy people who are coming uh, to be a part of what God is doing here. And here's where a lot of Christians fall off the, the bandwagon. We can either view rich people as evil or poor people as evil. There's really usually not an in between. Some people will say, you know, poor people are foolish and that's why they're they're poor. You know, God doesn't love them because they're just fools. And then on this side, they would say, well, God said the root of all evil is money. And so the rich people are the evil ones. The problem with these people is they're like, uh, you know, they miss what James actually said, which is the, the root of all evil is not money. The root of all evil is the love of money. Throughout scripture, we see actually something completely different. It's not black and white. It's there's godly poor and there's ungodly poor. There's godly rich and there's ungodly rich. It's not about what you have. It's about what you do with what you have. How do you steward it? This is a huge Christian theme. We believe in stewardship, uh, which is this idea that we believe everything we have and everything we own is actually not ours. That one minute after death, Bill Gates and the homeless guy on the street have the exact same net worth. It was theirs for the short amount of time they lived, and one day we'll stand before King Jesus and he'll say, what did you do with what I gave you? Did you steward it well? And some of us will have nothing to show Jesus. We'll say, well, I had a really cool boat or I went on a lot of really cool trips. And Jesus will say, that's awesome, but that's not why I gave it to you. I gave it to you to steward it well. And a lot of us don't even think about the way we're stewarding. And I just want to tell you that our only hope is to be the godly rich because we can't even be the poor. And you say, Blake, I'm poor. No, you're not. You're not poor. If you drove here in a car and you have a $600 phone in your pocket, you're in the top 3% of the world. The reason why you feel poor is because of stewardship. Because you're trying to keep up with people that you shouldn't be trying to keep up with. To impress people that you don't even like. And you will not be given off uh, on on the side because you, you felt poor. Because you had so many debts and so many payments. No, you are stewarding this well or not well. Godly or ungodly. And how I can tell that you're stewarding it well or not well is where are the priorities? Do you prioritize God or do you prioritize something else? It always comes with sacrifice. As we continue on, verse uh, 1 of chapter 3, we see this. When the seventh month arrived and the Israelites were in their towns, the people gathered as one in Jerusalem. 
This week I'm talking about uh, the individual side of worship. Next week I'll talk about the corporate side of worship, how we worship God together. And uh, so I'm going to come back to 3-1 next week. But I, I do find it interesting that they didn't gather over Facebook Live. They actually gathered in person. They didn't have Facebook Live, but you get the point. Verse 2. You guys are going to have to wake up a little bit. Jeshua, son of Jehozadak, and his brothers, the priest, along with Zerubbabel, son of Shetiel, and his brothers, began to build the altar of Israel's God, an order to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set up the altar on its foundations and offered burnt offerings for the morning and the evening on it to the Lord. And then if you have a Bible, a paper Bible, you ought to underline this part. Even though they feared the surrounding peoples, even though they feared the surrounding peoples, what's the first thing they do? They give God their best and their first. So in your money and in your time, do you give God what's left over or do you give him the best and the first? Do you, do you say, you know what, after I've paid the bills, I bought the car I want, I make sure I'm not going to prison and pay the IRS. If I have some money left over and the preacher really convicts me or there's something really sad, I'll give God 20 bucks and I'll feel good about it. Or do you make sure God gets what he's supposed to get first? And in your time, as you fill up your calendar, is it, you know, whenever there's nothing else going on, I'll give God what I have left. Or do you make sure God has what he's supposed to have first? Worshiping God is always going to cost you something. That's why David says in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel 24, he says, I will not give to my God that which costs me nothing. It's not faith if you don't have to push yourself a little bit. Faith only shows up when there is also fear. A lot of people say, I can't give because I'm afraid that it won't work out, whether that's with your time or your money. And I want to say that's actually what worship is. If the fear is not there, then you're not worshiping God. You're just giving something logical. And a lot of you do it so that you can have God. And when I say you, I'm including myself. I'm not trying to yell at you guys. Um, But when we give, a lot of us, when we give, we're just doing it to try to curry some favor with God. You know, here's 20 bucks, or I messed up really bad, so here's 40 bucks. As if God's supposed to serve us in that way because, oh, we gave him some of our money, which is already his. There's two really good Old Testament disciplines when we think about putting God first in our money and in our time. They're disciplines. I say that. They're not commands like they were in the Old Testament, meaning you're not cursed based upon whether you do them or don't do them, which is what some people teach. Listen to me. We're cursed and blessed based upon what Jesus Christ did for us alone. That's the only way. Why is Blake blessed? Nothing to do with the way I spend my money or the way I spend my time. Everything to do with what Jesus has done for me. But an overflow out of that should be the way I spend my money and the way that I spend my time. And so the the thing that we see in the Old Testament when it comes to time is this kind of principle of the Sabbath, which is taking one day and saying, God, this is your day. And we trust that you'll do more with six days than we could do with seven days. And so you guys are a part of what could be a Sabbath day. Sabbath doesn't mean you don't do anything. It just means you set it apart for God and your family. It can look like, you know, coming to a church service and then going and eating lunch with your family, taking a nap with your wife. Unless you have kids, you probably don't nap very much. Uh, And then eating dinner with some friends and preparing for the next week ahead. It can be that simple. But what you're saying is, is that this is God's day. So if my boss calls me and he wants me to go out, guess what the answer is? No, because I've got a bigger boss than you. Now, some of you at that point, you got chills because you're like, what? Say no to my job. How could I possibly do that? And the reason is, is because your job is truly greater than Jesus in your life. You worship your job. You worship what the people are doing. And I'm not saying that there's never days in which you work. I'm not even saying you have to take the discipline of Sabbath, but you need to be honest with yourself. Do I let God fill my calendar or is he kind of the sand that fills in where the big rocks aren't already? 
And then with money, there is the discipline of tithing. And tithing is a very specific thing. A lot of people say tithing uh, is you know basically whatever they give. They say, like, I tithe to such and such organization, or I gave my tithe of 40 bucks. And that, it's fine. That's just giving. And giving is good. We ought to give like that. But tithing is a very specific discipline. Tithe literally means tenth. It's the first tenth given to the local church. That's what tithing is as a discipline. And all those words matter. It's the first, meaning I'm going to give God this 10% before I pay the bills, before I send money to the IRS, before I buy groceries. This is God's. Trusting that he can do more with 90% than I can do with 100%. And then it's to the local church because it's, it's what God wants you to give. And this is why it's so important to give to the local church. If it's not this one, then whatever church you want to be a part of, you ought to give to that church. This is not about me trying to get your money because, honestly, uh, you know, I've had people who threatened with money and I said, there's the door. And I'll say the same to you. you know, if you think I want your money, you need to go somewhere where you could trust the guy that doesn't want your money. I, I want your heart. And Jesus says that the biggest competitor for your heart is your money. The biggest thing that you will worship over him is your money. And so it's giving the first 10% to him and to his causes so that you're not controlling the money in your life. You're saying, God, I give control over to you. And here are some of the kind of common excuses I hear about why people don't tithe. And again, I'm not saying this is a command that you have to do it. I'm going to give you kind of something else in a a little bit. But I am saying that you ought to honor God first with your money, and it ought to be a little bit scary. People will say to me, Blake, I don't think I I can work that out in my life. I don't think that I can afford it. To which I really lovingly want to say to people, For most things in your life, you don't care if you can afford it or not. That's why most of us live in a house that's two sizes too big. And we drive cars that we can't afford. So we go to the bank and we pay for their furniture. And we pay debt on it for 84 months. Affording doesn't come into play when you want to buy something. You put it on a credit card. Or you want to go on a vacation you can't afford. If you want to do it bad enough, you find a way to go. That might be a little bit too real for some of you. And I'm sorry. But the fact is, Americans are notorious for not giving a rip about whether or not we can afford something. Well, have Bank of America foot the bill for us. And yet when it comes to God's money, all of a sudden we're Dave Ramsey worried about our budget. Okay. I think in reality, what your budget is showing me is that you care and value those things more than what you value God. Even though they feared the surrounding people. That's the point. It's supposed to scare you. You're supposed to say, God, I'm going to put this first, and I don't know how the rest is going to work out. That's what faith is. You know, Taylor and I, we went and we did uh, indoor skydiving. It was awesome. I loved it. Uh, And yet, you know, I never was afraid because I knew the whole time the ground was about that far down. So if I fell, you know, what's the worst that could happen? Taylor went real skydiving because there's a screw loose in her head somewhere. (laughs) I didn't even go to the skydiving place with her because I was afraid I'd get roped into it. What's the difference? I didn't have faith in the guy she strapped herself to. I didn't have enough faith in the parachute to actually jump out of an airplane. And a lot of us, we want to do indoor skydiving when it comes to Christianity and especially with our money. You know, I'll give, but the fall can't be too much. And what Jesus is calling you to is this radical devotion to him to say, you jump out of the plane and I'm the parachute. Do you trust me or not? That's what true worship is. Now, I understand for a lot of people, it's hard to go straight from, you know, zero to 10% of giving. Uh, and, And I will say this, you'll never have enough to tithe and you'll never have enough time to take a Sabbath until you do it. It's one of those things you have to do. And then you watch God build the life around it. And I know people who started tithing and now they give 90% of their money away and they live on 10% of their money. 
It's amazing what God will do when you take a, a, a step of faith. But I also understand that if you're not giving anything up front to God, it could be a little bit scary, which is why uh, we have uh, what we call Team 60 here. Should be a card somewhere around you. And for me, it's just it's something to get you started on giving consistently. Uh, Team 60 is $60 a week or $240 a month. It's the, it's the same thing. And uh, we ask that you sign up through the card so that we can track it. And the reason why we track it is because at the end of three months, if you come to me and you say, Blake, I wish I wouldn't have worshipped God with my money, I'll give you every single penny of it back. If you're not good at saving money, you might sign up for this so I can save money for you. Like, because I don't want your money. I don't want it. Jesus does not want your money. He wants your heart. There's only one time in the whole Gospels where Jesus takes somebody's money. He, he does a, a magic trick. He gets a fish. He pulls a coin out of the fish's mouth. That's the only coin we see Jesus taking throughout the, all of the Gospels. He doesn't care about your money as far as wanting it, but he does care about your money because of you. He talks more about money than he does heaven and hell combined. It's a big deal because that's where we often find what we truly worship. And so Team 60 is $240 a month, which is what the average American spends on Amazon every year. Uh, and we spend more than that on fast food. So I'm just asking you to love Jesus and to worship Jesus as much as you already worship Jeff Bezos. And that shouldn't be that hard to do. Now, this is, again, the divisive part of the message. And so I'm going to, uh, Molly, if you want to go ahead and come up, uh, I'm, I'm going to close it out here. And I want you guys to know that this is coming from a place of love. Uh, this is one of those messages. And next week will be one of those messages, too, where people think I'm thinking directly about them. You know, he was talking about me. He targeted me, especially in a church our size. And the reality is you feel that way because it's convicting for every single one of us in this room. All of us struggle with this. None of us are perfect with this. Uh, in fact, I was thinking about one person the whole time I was preparing this message. I thought, I really hope I get him. And his name is Junior Zollinger. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking about myself the whole time. The whole time. I was thinking about my time the way I spend it, my money, and the way I spend it. You know, I, uh, I think for me, it's, it's even more difficult because I'm in a position of serving God with my job. And so it gets really blurry for me. Am I serving my job or am I serving God with my job? You know, I, I spent 13 hours of work yesterday doing the Lord's work, premarital counseling and groups and prayer and preparing a sermon. And yet at the same time, I often wonder if that's more about what I'm doing and what matters to me. And in our money, we, we, Taylor and I have tithed since we got married. We give a little bit over with tithe, but I've, I've kind of started to wonder, maybe we're comfortable. Maybe it's not an act of worship anymore because our life has kind of went around where we already are, and it's not really that hard. I don't think about it anymore. And so I, I wonder if God might be calling me to step up my giving. See, this is for all of us. And what worship really is of Jesus it is not about what you're doing or not doing. It's more about your posture towards it. It's about taking the right next step. I told you at the beginning, there's two responses. There's the response of hostility and rebellion. You know, I've heard God's words preached, and he makes me mad. You get mad at me, even though I'm just the messenger giving you the message. And you go find a better messenger who will tell you what you want to hear. That's certainly an option. But the heart of a worshiper is to be humbled and repentant. To say, Jesus, you've shown me something in my life where I'm worshiping you below what I'm worshiping something else. There's something else in my life that I'm valuing more than you. There's something else in my life that I'm serving more than you. And it's scary. Even though I fear the surrounding people, I'm going to take the right next step. That's truly what worship is about, friends. Because in view of the mercies of God, we worship. 
That's why uh, in verse 64 it says they gave based upon what they could give. But in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, it talks about a church in Macedonia who gave more than what they could give. Out of their poverty, they gave. Why would they do that? Because their Savior gave it all for them. Most famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen: For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. When you realize that generosity, the only thing that can flow out of us is generosity in ourselves as we worship God and we serve him above all. If you will, friends, let me pray for you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that you love us. God, you are worthy of worship. Right now, angels surround you crying, holy, holy, holy. God, would you help us get a glimpse of that? Get a glimpse of your glorious grace for us. God, to know that you have taken us from enemies of God to children of God so that we might worship you with all that we have and all that we are. If you would, friends, take about 20 seconds to say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me through this message? God, I pray that you'd give us the courage to obey what you've called us to do. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing, friends. Thanks for tuning in to the Ascent Church podcast. You can check in with us on social media at My Ascent Church. New episodes each week. Thanks. Thanks.